for those of you who are here uh, for the first time tonight or new, relatively new to meditation, uh, I just wanted to say that the clapping was so wonderful. Um, 20 years ago, it would have made me insane. And I would have been trying to have my perfect little meditation. And I would have been, what is wrong with those people and why do they keep clapping? And, and I thought, isn't this great? Tonight, all it is is like this wonderful little mindfulness bell of, oh, right, I went away, clapping. Oh, are they clapping for me to come back? Oh, good. <laughs> so in a sense, even something as simple as that qualifies as right action. Right action is all around us. And it all depends upon our own view, our own attitude. And years ago, I'll just share this really quickly, there was somebody in my sangha who uh, really just could not almost help herself. She just made a lot of noise when she walked around. And I always knew that it was this person. The, we had a sliding door in the zendo, and this person would come to the sliding door and go, whoosh, and then, boom, 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 boom. And then she'd get onto her seat and, you know, and I would just, it was the beginning, like the first year or two of my practice. And I was just, oh, why can't this person be more quiet? What's wrong with her mindfulness practice? And then came the day finally, probably three or four or five or maybe even six years along the way. One morning, same thing, whoosh, went the sliding door. And in my mind, I said, oh, Good morning. <laughs> and everything changed. And it was such a wonderful wake up for me of, oh, I see. So who was bothered here? I was. The other person wasn't bothered. So I am really happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm particularly glad to uh, have been able to um, take the place of the person who couldn't be here tonight because when Shiloh wrote and asked would I be able to speak on right action I wrote back right away and said oh of course and then I, I thought gee I wonder if I've written about this or talked about this before I probably have it's one of the eightfold path I mean you know how do you get to be practicing for this long and not talk about this but here's the amazing thing I went through all of my notes about five of these binders. I have meditation, mindfulness, effort, and right livelihood, right speech. Everything is there except for right action. And I've touched on it. What I did was I, I you know, made little stickers where I mentioned something, but I, when I was done, I thought, this is amazing. So thank you so much for the opportunity of having to think about this a little bit. So I wanted to share something. This hangs, uh, the, my group uh, meets both in Menlo Park on Monday evenings, but also on Saturdays in Woodside at my home. I actually have a meditation hall on one end of the house. And the bathroom that people use uh, that's near the Zendo, I Years ago, not for them, this was before they ever came, I hung this lovely calligraphy in the bathroom because I figured at least once in a while then I would notice it because you have to use the bathroom occasionally and you know, you're kind of looking around. And 
What it is, is the five recollections of Thich Nhat Hanh. And I don't know if you know them, and even if you do, it's wonderful to share. And I'd, I'd like to start my conversation with you tonight about right action by reading these five recollections. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. The first time I heard this was in Plum Village in France. It was so simple, so obvious, and I was rooted to my seat. My actions are the ground on which I stand. That's all we actually have. Our activity in this moment. Right action, these, these actions upon which I stand, begins with the Buddha's teachings of the Four Noble Truths, obviously, because you've already been learning about them. But within those Four Noble Truths are contained the Three Marks of Existence. The Three Marks of Existence are called that because they are self-evident. If you take it out of Buddhist terminology, if you just speak with normal language, they are the three things that everybody you meet can agree upon. The first is actually the first noble truth. The first mark of existence is suffering or dissatisfaction. It's easy to misunderstand this. On Sunday, I was at IMC leading the Dharma Rocks program for the kids. And I did the Thich Nhat Hanh orange meditation, if any of you know about that. Basically, you give them an orange, and then you really torture them. First of all, they have to smell the orange. They have to touch the orange. They have to be completely with the orange. Then they have to peel the orange, and they're supposed to be doing this quietly, although I had ten girls, so that was almost impossible. <laughs> little by little, they get it unpeeled, and then finally you let them take a section, and you instruct them to put it in their mouth, but don't do anything with it. Don't bite down nothing. Well, if you've ever put a slice of orange in your mouth, you know the first thing that happens is your whole mouth fills with saliva. And there is this intense desire to swallow. 
It's like, no, 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 don't swallow. Don't even bite yet. Mm. I said, all right, now you may take one bite, but don't swallow the juice. I said, all right, now, now you may finally swallow the juice, but don't swallow the orange slice. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I want you to take another bite and only swallow the juice. This goes on, you know, another five or six bites, continue, 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 and finally, with her mouth full of orange pulp, because by that time, that's all that's left, one little girl says, this is really disgusting. (laughs) And I said, yes, and that is suffering. (laughs) I said, I know when I said this word, you thought I meant having cancer or breaking your leg or having your best friend leave town forever. But suffering can be so small. Suffering can just be having something in your mouth that you don't want in your mouth anymore. That you actually wanted in your mouth in the beginning. (laughs) Suffering is just the distance between what is and what we want it to be. It can be this little and we will still be dissatisfied. Now, if you tell people this story, they will get this right away and they will understand what you are saying and they will be able to agree to that first mark of existence. The second one is really easy. That is impermanence. All we have to do is look around. We're all getting older. Every moment of the day, every time I look in the mirror, it's like, oh my God, this this wrinkle in between my brows is getting deeper and deeper every day. So that one's an easy one. The seasons, everything tells us about impermanence. The third one's a little bit more difficult. But if you work on it in simple language, eventually I think you can pretty much get everyone to agree on this one too. And that is this idea of no self. No permanent, inherent, unchanging self. No self that is independent of everything, existing in a vacuum. The simplest explanation is you're breathing air. Without air, without water, you don't survive. Right away you are dependent upon something. There is no such thing as just you. You exist in relationship to everything. So the four noble truths actually contain these three marks of existence. Suffering or dissatisfaction, impermanence, and no self, which is sometimes, I'm not sure in this practice, but in Zen practice is referred to as emptiness. Empty of what? empty of a permanent, unchanging, independent self. No such thing. If you watch your mind for any length of time, it's phenomenal what comes up. Thoughts come into your brain that, where'd they come from? And that's why my favorite bumper sticker is the one, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) Now, 
This understanding, these three marks of existence and the understanding of the Four Noble Truths is experienced and realized in meditation. And the fundamental precepts of right action which are practiced by every Buddhist sect and in fact practiced by pretty much all the religions of the world and spiritual practices arise naturally out of that meditative mind. These are not ideas. I mean, the Buddha didn't sit down at the beginning under the Bodhi tree and say, hmm, gee, what would be a good guideline to live life by? Well, probably no killing. That's a good start. Well, let's see, what else do we not like? Well, we don't really like lying or stealing. It didn't happen that way. Anyone who practices for any length of time doesn't want to kill. I am forever taking bugs out of my house. Twenty years ago, it wouldn't have dawned on me to do that. A line of ants? Now, if I do that, which sometimes I still do, I sit there and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I really do feel badly about it. It arises naturally out of this big mind that we all share. We don't want to kill. We don't want to harm. The precepts arise from that place. They are not arbitrarily chosen or intellectually decided upon. And because of this, because they arise internally, they arise in that universal place, Ah, we are each responsible then to take our seat. Once we understand that these are not just rules and regulations out here, then we understand the importance of our meditation practice. We take our seat, but once we do, we are supported by the wisdom of big mind, this mind that we can all tap into that is much bigger than just our little mind, our ego mind. And it's just there waiting for us to sit down and be silent long enough to hear it. So my spiritual grandfather, Suzuki Roshi, from San Francisco Zen Center, wrote, Each one of us must make his or her own true way. And when we do, that way will express the universal way. This is the mystery. When you understand one thing through and through, you understand everything. When you try to understand everything, you will not understand anything. The best way is to understand yourself. And then you will understand everything. So when you try hard to make your own way, you will help others and 
You will be helped by others. Before you make your own way, you cannot help anyone. And no one can help you. To be independent in this true sense, we have to forget everything which we have in our mind and discover something quite new and different moment after moment. Clapping, birds, sirens, wind, coughing, moving. This is how we live in the world. So, the precepts of right action in Buddhism start with three. The three pure precepts. Later they were expanded. Most Buddhist sects have at least five precepts that they share. No killing, no stealing, no misusing sexuality, no lying, and no intoxicating. Zen people have another five. I heard yesterday that uh, certain forest monks add three more, so they have eight. And then, of course, there's the Vinaya where there's hundreds. But these three pure precepts were the beginning. And what are they? Very simple teaching and very hard to do. I vow to avoid all evil. I vow to do all good. I vow to live to benefit all beings. These were some of the original words of the Buddha. But what is meant here? Because as soon as you say the words good and evil, you know, it's Star Wars all over again. You've got Darth Vader over here and you've got Luke Skywalker over there and never the twain shall meet until you find out that he's actually a good guy at the end. It sounds judgmental and it is very dualistic. And the problem in much degree has to do with the English language. The English language is based on dualism. It's just the way it comes together. So it helps to go back to the Buddha's original words. Kusala and Akusala. Kusala didn't mean good in the sense of good versus bad. What it meant was wholesome states of mind. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Having a wholesome state of mind. Akusala was unhelpful states of mind. But even that, wholesome, unwholesome, begins to sound dualistic. And again, this is English language. You've got a real problem here. But it helps if we can understand wholesome and unhelpful in terms of waking up. You can call it enlightenment, nirvana, I don't care. But what we all really want, I think, is to wake up to this moment, whatever this moment is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how wonderful it is, we would like to actually, for once, fully be here for it. Instead of thinking about what's coming next or what just happened or, well, do I really want this or don't I? 
Just really completely being here for it. So if we can think of wholesome and unhelpful in terms of waking up and not just necessarily in and of themselves, then we can get away from that dualistic part. The Buddha's use of these words was significant. There's a woman, Karen Armstrong, who wrote a biography of the Buddha, which, if you haven't read, is really quite wonderful. And she's somebody who writes about all kinds of religion and famous religious people. But this is what she says. The Buddhist system of mindfulness was not cultivated in a spirit of neurotic introspection. I like that, because sometimes it does seem that way. He hasn't put his humanity under the microscope in this way in order to castigate himself for his sins. Sins had no place in his system, since guilt would simply be unhelpful. It would embed an aspirant in the ego, the very thing he was trying to transcend. Because where does guilt come from? Small mind, the ego mind. So a good example of this was the celibacy that the Buddha required of his disciples when he was first starting out. It's important to understand. He didn't ask them to be celibate because he thought that sex was sinful or bad. No. In terms of waking up, he asked for celibacy because other sexual activity was not going to help a person wake up because it expended a lot of energy. It was very distracting. If your desire is just to wake up, then you have to put all your energy, sexual energy, mental energy, emotional energy, into this practice. So it wasn't that he was saying it was bad. It was just, well, you know, what is it that you want? If you want to wake up, this is the most helpful thing you can do. And this understanding is, in fact, the same foundation from which the middle way arises. On the one hand, sensual pleasure. Nothing wrong with that. We all like it. Getting a good massage, boy. Not much to beat that. And over here, ascetic practice. Hey, I've done my stints at Tassajara. I've I've done what Shaila is doing right now, maybe not for four months, but for three. And, you know, both things are, are just fine. But if you want to wake up, truly, and totally integrated, at some point, those two extremes have to come together. And that is the Buddha's middle way. And out of that was born the Eightfold Path, which is, with the precepts, our guideline for right action. Okay, so avoid all evil, practice all good, but then we're left with this really difficult thing. I vow to live to benefit all beings. Hmm. Who are these beings anyway? 
Are they separate from me? Emptiness says no. When you're talking about no separate self, that's emptiness. And emptiness says there is no such thing as a separate me. And then, of course, there are all those beings inside my head. And they are, you know, have the life of their own. If I live an awakened life, is that a benefit to all beings? Where does benefit begin and end? Does it begin and end? And what do we mean by benefit anyway? If we think that there is a me that is benefiting you, we're just caught in a different web of ego and dualistic thinking. It might seem better than the egocentric version of, I don't care about any of you, but still, we're caught. And what practice, what meditation is to help us do is to leap clear of all of it. One day I was in the city with my husband. This has been many years ago. And my husband, by the way, um, only gets practice through osmosis. He does not have a meditation practice himself, but he has all of us there at his house all the time. But at this point, we were up in the city. This is probably about 10 years ago. And we were walking up Grant Avenue towards uh, Chinatown. And he was the one that noticed first. He said, hey, isn't that one of your compatriots up there? There was a Japanese monk. And he was he had an assistant with him, and he, and he had all the right robes, so clearly he, he was a Zen monk. It was not a Chinese monk of some other extraction. But he recognized the outfit because this person was wearing his robes on the street. Oh, isn't that one of, your, one of your members? So I said, wow, you're right. And so we, he was half a block ahead of us. So we had a really good view of him. And then all of a sudden he stopped. And he turned, and there was a homeless person sitting in front of a shop door on the ground. And there was this exchange that happened. And my husband turned to me and he said, Did you see that? I said, What did you see? He said, I've never seen giving like that before. And that really was what I saw too. Here's a monk dressed in beautiful robes. He's got his rakasu. He's walking along. He stops. He sees this man. He made a small bow. He reached in, pulled money out, handed it to the man, bowed, and walked on. There was none of that sort of you know, sort of half-hearted, throwing it in the, in the dish or, or, you know, the other half of the people just walking by as if this person doesn't exist. He turned his full attention. He treated this person as he would treat his mother. And my husband saw this, which was even more astonishing to me because that meant it was even more obvious. I mean, if I had seen it, 
at that point, maybe. But for it to be that clear, there was no difference in that moment between the monk and the homeless person. He did not feel it, and I don't think the homeless person did either. Something happened and we saw it. We had this gift given to us to see it. And then off he went. There actually is no separation. But our action gets in the way. Our self-consciousness, our concern of, oh, maybe they're going to use it to go buy liquor. As soon as an idea arises, separation. When we allow ourselves to just be, to just give, to just act, separation falls away. And then it is easy to benefit all beings. Recently I shaved my head because there was this very special ceremony in my sangha. And this has happened to me before. I always feel like I should wear a sign, no, I do not have cancer. (laughs) And the reason that I know that people think so is that they start acting so kind. And the last time when I did this was about 10 years ago, and I I remembered saying this at that time, and I'm saying it again. Why don't we always do this? Everybody is wounded inside. I don't have to have cancer. You don't have to have some terrible illness. Why don't we treat everyone that way all the time? So when I was at IMC the other night, there was an older person, a member of that group there, and and I mentioned this, and she said, yes, why don't we? And I said, because... Oh, because I said, we treat children that way. We're very understanding and kind with children. We give them lots of leeway. We know it's not malicious, whatever it is they're doing. We forgive them over and over and over. I said, but we don't do that with adults. And she said, yes, yes, why not? And I said, because we think adults are supposed to know better. Years ago, I suddenly heard that voice in my head. I was thinking about some of my adult students. And then all of a sudden, this other voice came up and said, why? Why do you think that? Why should they know better? And this voice said, what do you mean, why do I think they should know better? They're adults. So? (laughs) This is the reason you need to understand yourself thoroughly. There are little tapes in there, little phrases that your mother gave you, your father gave you, your next-door neighbor said in passing, You know, how many of you were told you would never be an artist? And then you said, okay, and that was it. You could never draw again. It's the same thing. Here was a voice in my head. 
adults are supposed to know how to behave. They should know better. And finally one day, I knew myself well enough to say, why? Not always so. (laughs) We have these ideas in our head, these ideas, these opinions, and we don't even know they're there until the day we say, are you sure? Really? Why do you think so? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, maybe it's not true. Oh, my goodness. The three pure precepts are calls to action as well as right action themselves. They are asking us to take a deeper look at these ideas, these belief systems. Fundamentally, there is no right or wrong, good or evil, how much ever we might like it as a movie theme. Uh, But to some degree, we do believe this. We do believe that the homeless person is just going to take that money and go buy drink because someone has put that idea in our head. It may happen that way, and it may not. Who are we to judge? How do we know? So now, I just give money. I just decide I, am, I can't go there because I don't know. And there's a wonderful saying in Zen practice, not knowing is most intimate. I'm always very pleased when I ask someone a question, especially someone who's, you know, famous teacher or something, and they say, I don't know. It takes a lot of courage to say, I don't know, in a culture that expects us to know everything even before we know it. So those of you who are new tonight, I congratulate you for entering upon this practice in a don't-know state of mind. It's a lovely place to be, that, that beginning part where you're looking around thinking everybody else knows what they're doing, ha, 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 thinking that you are the only one whose mind is going on and on and on, when in fact, if there were little balloons above our head, you know, it'd be... That's right. (laughs) And so sometimes it's really important to do something you don't know how to do just to remember what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. It makes you humble and it also makes you much more compassionate. So these three pure precepts are what we base everything else on. Seen from the point of view of waking up. I don't know why you're here. I assume, and here we go, here's a belief system, I assume that it is because at some point you did not feel that you were completely living life, that something was in your way, that there was some understanding that you did not yet have. The fact is, you have everything you need. And it's all right here. This is actually the biggest gift, and we don't even know it most of the time. 
when we take the time, as you have tonight, to just sit down and be still for even 30 or 40 minutes, allowing small mind to chatter, chatter, chatter away because in between, you might not realize it if you're beginning especially, but in between that chatter, there, there are actually moments of nothing. It's wonderful. And sometimes those moments grow and there's more nothing. And in that nothing is all possibility because something then can arise. It's rather like the story of the Zen monk and student. There are two teacups. And the student comes in and starts talk, 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 telling this Zen monk their entire life story, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. And the monk is pouring tea. And at some point, the student has gone on so long that they looked out, oh, Roshi, the tea is spilling over. And the teacher says, you know, if you don't empty out your teacup, there is no way for it to get filled. If we are just always walking around with a full teacup of ideas, opinions, biases, prejudice, there is no way for something new and wondrous to arise. And we're cheating ourselves because there is so much wonder in the world. Right action is what you are doing at this very moment. Sitting down, being still, and allowing something, anything, to arise. And then to return to the breath and watching the next thing arise and returning and returning again and again. It's a gift. And the longer we practice this gift and the more people we surround ourselves with who practice this way, the more we will experience kusala, wholesome states of mind. And without your even trying, that will go out into the world. And you will save multitudinous beings and you will be saved first. <laughs>